And I think that what's interesting about the romance novel and what many people who don't read romance often kind of mistake for what a romance is, is is that the journey of the romance novel isn't just about like one woman finding the love of a good man. It's often about that sort of interplay of, of, of women coming to terms with who they are and how they, how they exist in a society and finding men and often proving to men or showing men their power. Invariably, the heroine of a romance novel has all the power. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. So I am here today with Sarah McLean. Sarah is a best-selling feminist romance novelist who has won lots of awards and has made the New York Times bestseller list. Very impressive. I just want to say, Sarah, you are killing it. Ah, uh, well, I do. I do what I can. I try. <laughs> and you have a new book coming out right now. Can you tell us about your new book? Sure. My book is called The Day of the Duchess. I write historical romances set in the 1830s in London, and this is my feminist. It's it's a divorce book, is what it is. It's about a woman who has had a. It, she was in an arranged marriage, and it went terribly south. Um, and she took off because she didn't want to have to deal with that business. And she went to America for three years and opened a tavern in America and then came back to London deciding to start a business for herself, which in the 1830s couldn't happen if you were married. And so she needs a divorce. In the 1830s, if you wanted a divorce in England, you needed an act of parliament to do oh, it. Oh my goodness. Which feels sort of <laughs> shockingly familiar to today. <laughs> I just realized like it's sort of an unsettling thing that a group of sort of old white men were the only way that a woman could get out of a problematic marriage then. (laughs) Um, But actually it all turns out fine because she does fall back in love with her husband, which is unexpected and uh, hopefully very rewarding, maybe. (laughs) So there's a couple challenges that you're dealing with here. You're having a feminist approach, but it's in the romance novel genre. Mm -hmm. Would you think that's rare, or do you think that's like no. a new genre? No, I don't. I yeah. mean, romances have been around since the what we think of as romance novels with you know Fabio on the cover yeah. have been around since the 1970s, and I don't think that it's a accident that the first romance novel was published the same year that Gloria Steinem was in front of the DNC saying the Democratic Party needed to do more for women. Um, okay. Romance is essentially, this. it's an adventure novel with a woman at the center of the story. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the, the tale, the heroine has found success and she's triumphed over, you know, challenges and she's found pleasure and she's found a companion and it's about kind of women becoming equal and also becoming powerful and finding their power. And it always has been. So... I like to think that I write feminist romance novels, but I also feel like many, many, many romance novels have been feminist long before I started writing. That's really interesting to think about it with women as being the center, you know, the the heroine, the main character. Well, I mean, I think about it a lot in terms of most media in the world, books, films, radio, everything feels like it's the male gaze. Right, right. Um, Oh, God, yeah. The male gaze is a really, 
problematic. I'm watching Twin Peaks right now because I was a huge. Can we just talk about this? <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, if we're yeah, just yeah. down the rabbit yeah, hole. Sure. Twenty five years ago, right? I mean, Twin Peaks was amazing, right. and I and I I loved the original Twin Peaks, and I'm watching it now, and I'm just like, it's just such a dude show. Yeah. David Lynch is great, but it feels like every the camera yeah. is um, is the male gaze yeah. in that show, and yeah. it's so rare to find something where the camera is a female is the female gaze. Right. And I feel like that's even truer for me, or maybe I'm more attuned to it because I write and love the genre that is so much about women. It's by you know it's the largest segment of the fiction market, um, and it's ex- almost exclusively by for and about women, and so. It feels like, you know, why isn't everything putting women at the center of the story? <laughs> the male gaze is something that I've has bothered me forever. And the thing that I've been freaked out a lot about in recent years is that I think a lot of women and young girls have adopted the male gaze perspective, even when they're the ones that are technically taking the selfie. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, wanna, like the, you want to be sexy, like the body be... part shots, right? <laughs> I mean, okay, if it's body positive, it's it's hard to find the line between body positive. But if it's like, oh, I'm taking this because this is what I, how women have been represented, and this is what we think is valuable about women. So this is what I need to emphasize in my photos, and I, it's so important that I look sexy and my body parts are good. You know, like these right those photos of body parts like cause this old feminist, like a lot of older feminists, right. a lot of heartache. <laughs> I get that. I get that. I mean, I do think that there's a question of intent in in those situations. And, you know, if you want to take nude pictures of yourself and share them with people who you, you know, with whomever, that's your business and it's your body and you make your choices, right? But yeah, there is, there is no doubt that when we're, the young women who I, who I see in my life, um, who are sort of exploring their sexuality, which is great and super healthy are you're right they often come to it through this idea of how of the intent being that their their sexuality is somehow in relation to men right right rather than them being sexual beings and men also being sexual beings and like figuring out how right. that works together right no i totally agree with that so this is my and little bit of maybe devil's advocacy or, or being a devil's advocate or kind of probing more on the feminist side of romance novels. Sure. I think one question is, okay, is it a quest toward romance and is it a quest toward the love of the man? Does it put men at the center of like our well-being? And like, I personally get a little grumpy at how much I feel like I was raised for like romance to be the quest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so what about that? <laughs> I think that's a great question, and I think that I think there are there are a couple of things at play. One, I think we judge love as a goal as a society and maybe as a world because it's so it feels so pedestrian. Like everybody has a story about a love story. We use it to sell Tic Tacs and car insurance and you know <laughs> other weird things that we sell yeah. with it. Like it's everywhere and it's it's thrown at us um but the reality is that love has been the heart of great storytelling forever and part of the reason why i think is because um it is sort of one of our most human emotions right it's pure id at its right core and i think that what's interesting about the romance novel and what many people who don't read romance often kind of mistake for what a romance is is 
is that the journey of the romance novel isn't just about like one woman finding the love of a good man. Mm-hmm. It's often about that sort of interplay of, of, of women coming to terms with who they are and how they, how they exist in a society and finding men and often proving to men or showing men their power. Invariably, the heroine of a romance novel has all the power. The sort of joy for romance readers is the moment where the hero kind of breaks. <laughs> <laughs> And, in, and that's not, I mean, there is, there's something to be said for the idea that he's not really, he's a metaphor for a larger thing, right? Like, is it possible he's society and it's all just feminism? I mean, maybe. Very interesting. Very interesting. So certainly most, my, my romance heroines and most romance heroines that I love are heroines who, who have strength at the start of the book. So it's not that a man creates the identity of the heroine. It's that the heroine exists and a man is sort of secondary to her story. Uh, That's super interesting. I would just add one other thing to that, which is this sense that the romance novel ends happily for women. And it's not just ending with happy, happily ever after in the sort of traditional fairy tale sense, but also with kind of partners, obviously partnership and, and, you know, a person who views you as an equal, who you can sort of see a future with that is based in equality, um, pleasure, sexual pleasure, sexual identity. I mean, all the, in, in much of literature, women are there to die and suffer. (laughs) (laughs) Sad, but true. (laughs) Well, certainly on law and order too. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, exactly. Women right. are women right. exist in media often to suffer to be victims, and for us yeah. to sort of point and I know you've talked moms on the show before, and um, and often we talk about sort of this idea of maternal sacrifice as being sort of our only identity or a right. feminine sacrifice, right. but that's not what a romance novel is there for. A romance novel is there to show women triumphing. I love it. So this is a highly competitive genre. And you've won awards, several awards. You've been a bestseller. I mean, what of, of everything you've done, is there something that you're most proud of in terms of the accomplishments that you've had? I mean, I'm most proud of the moments that I've had with readers. I mean, like I said before, the genre itself is one of the, uh, it's the largest segment of the paperback fiction market. Um, we have literally millions of readers, um, you know, it's for people who don't know about romance, but know about publishing, but know about other books, you know, a normal piece of literary fiction might sell, you know, 2000 copies in its first week out and hit the bestseller list for a romance novel. That's more like 20 or 30,000. Wow. Great. So it's good business too. (laughs) It's great business, but it's also about, there are tons and tons of readers out there Mm -hmm. who are drawn to these books and who are inspired by these books. And, um, you know, I've written all kinds of heroines. I've written, I write a lot of, I always write historical romances, but, um, my heroines are very modern in the sense that they like face the kind of issues that modern women face or that unfortunately women have faced throughout time. (laughs) Um, I've written abused characters. I've written characters who are, I've written all kinds of characters, but you know, when you get the letter from the woman who has left her husband because she read your book and was inspired by the character, by the main character, by the heroine or by the, you know, hero's sister, um, of course that's the most, I mean, take all the awards away, take all the sales away, like, that's the most important part. 
That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's deeply humbling, right? Because yeah. you don't expect that. Um, you know, I and I have had in my career, and I've been writing for almost a decade, but in my career, I've had maybe a handful of letters from women like that who have just been inspired to change their lives. Wow. And that feels heavy and important and also deeply humbling. Wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. I'm going to start reading now. (laughs) With that, we started in the the Yates Society. We're starting a feminist book club, so we'll have to add your your newest book to the list. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. (laughs) One theme that's come up a lot on this podcast is that women tend to take this prescribed path career path that maybe their parents thought they should take or their, you know, felt like their social groups were doing or society was pressuring them. And then at some point they're like, you know what, I don't want to be a banker. I want to be a designer. And then they jump for it. And that's when they find the best success. You know, when they, Mm -hmm. when they tap into what really is their passion, what really brings them joy, that's when they find success. Mm -hmm. So what gave you the courage to just be like, you've been writing for 10 years, you've been doing it since a young age. I mean, what gave you the courage to kind of take that, not take up any kind of prescribed path and just be like, I'm writing romance novels for a living. Right. Did you tell your parents, did your parents react to that? <laughs> well, I mean, I did have a prescribed path initially. I mean, I, I spent 10 years doing corporate PR. Okay. Um, and I loved it. I actually, I really enjoyed the work. I just ended up, um, you know, for fun, writing, writing a book that I would have liked to have read. And I was very lucky to get a, a publishing deal and then another and another and then I was you sort of face your you look at the path and you say well no one would turn down the path to be a full-time writer right so you close one door and open the other and I think for me it's about surrounding yourself with people who support it um you know especially in my case there are a lot of people who judge what I do harshly and they I mean everything from well you're you know, you're setting unrealistic expectations for, for women romance, for, ro- to for you're yeah. basically a pornographer. <laughs> um, there are a lot of people who who judge the books and judge the work, and um, you know, I you have to be willing to cut those people out of your life and you know stay focused on what you believe is the right path. And that's hard, but ignoring the haters. Yeah, and it's particularly difficult when those haters are people who should have been people who loved you. Yeah, you know. And um, but that's that's the hardest part. The hardest part is finding finding your tribe. Right. But once you do, then it feels like anything's possible. So when you wrote your first book, were you still working full time at the same time that you're mm-hmm. writing it? I wrote my first four books while I had a full time job. Wow. Yeah. That's that's a major side hustle there. <laughs> I did not have children. <laughs> um, I wrote all the time. I wrote longhand. I wrote on the subway. I wrote in line, you know, at the deli. I wrote, you know, any any second. I would come home from work at, you know, seven, have dinner with my husband, and immediately go to work. Um, and I was tremendously lucky, like I said, to have people who understood when I said, I can't go away or I can't come to your birthday party. I'm on deadline. I'm, you know... Whatever it was, everything was about the work, the the writing. So you really went all in in your side hustle. Yeah, part. I wouldn't recommend that as like a life plan. <laughs> um, but certainly, people say all the time, "Well, how do you how do you write a book?" Like, I have an idea. How do I write a book? And the answer is, you put your ass in the chair and you write a book. And right. I say, yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I wanted to share with you my story about romance novels. I want to hear okay. about it. When I was graduating from high school and about to go to college, I went to the College of William and Mary in Virginia, mm-hmm. and it was a liberal arts college, and I get my course like selection guide, you know, pick your classes. And to me, I was like, I can just pick my classes, you know, compared to high school. And one of the options for freshman seminar was reading, the, um, writing a romance novel. That's amazing. And I was like, I am taking writing the romance novel. <laughs> I was like, college is going to be amazing. And I, I, I signed up for it. Yeah, it was. It was a seminar, a freshman seminar. Was Mary. the professor a romance novel? Yes. Yeah, there you go. Do you remember another, her another name? Another path for you. I was trying to remember her name because I think she must have been a real badass. That's because fascinating. She, you know? Yeah. And it was one of the hardest classes I took in my four years yeah. of college. I signed up for it being like, college is going to be, I'm just going <laughs> to write romance novels. It was so hard. She was such a tough critic on the writing style. Yeah. Well, because romance is a very, it's, you have to write within the confines of it. There's a covenant with the reader you have to serve. So Yeah. Like every sentence has got to be delivering something major and like passivity, like was not okay. I mean, right. I really, the funny thing is I went along to be a writer as a lawyer in the DC circuit courthouse writing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I ended up writing very serious stuff, right? I write about M&A right now, you know? But I really credit that class that she was, like, really formed who I was mm-hmm. as a writer because she was the toughest, like, editor I had in any of my classes, like, That's ever. amazing. I wish you could remember <laughs> who it was. And also, I wanted to tell you that I did. we had to write a romance novel, and I did write one, and I wanted you to know, of course, knowing me, I made it a feminist novel. Yeah, yeah. And the whole plot line was about the woman was the boss, and the, the guy was her employee. Awesome. <laughs> Questionable ethically, but <laughs> and it was called Power Play. Ooh. See, I feel like I feel like A plus would read. But she was tough with the grades, man. I was trying so hard. Yeah. I was, I was, she was a tough grader. I'll have to figure out who she was. <laughs> That's an amazing story, and also just shocking that there was a writing romance novel course at you know a major university. Yeah. So if you need another so side job, on top I would love of that things, job. On Call top of me. being a mom if you work and a, a novelist. university, I want to teach that job. <laughs> teach that class. Yeah, definitely, right? Be on top fun. of being a I'm sure you've got lots of ample time on top of being a mother and a novelist. Well, I think that's it's interesting that you bring up time because I feel like that is the other thing that I mean, I spend a lot of time with women, right? Obviously because of what I write and right. who I am and right. what I'm interested in in the world. Um, But I think one of the challenges often for writers always and artists always, but particularly for women writers and artists and, you know, probably other as well, is this sense that our time is somehow not as valuable Mm. and um, this sense that we have to be grateful for um, other people providing us space to use our time for us Mm -hmm. um, and for the things that we're passionate about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important for, I say this to all writers, but especially to women who write is, you know, you have to carve out your time and you have to protect it. Like I write from 10 AM to 4 PM every day. That's my job. And it's very difficult for me to not say, Oh, but the car needs to be washed. Oh yeah. Such the kid needs to be taken to the doctor. Right. And it's always so easy for me to say, oh, I'll just not work today and I'll yeah. do this other sort of emotional work or household work. And right. it's really hard for women. It is really hard. Really hard. I've been writing about that a lot, actually. And, and also, 
um, the mental load too, right? The kind of planning of everything and sure. trying to share that more equally with your partner, if you, if you, you know, assuming you have a partner, but, um, that load that can just, even when you're actually having time, uh, your time, I forget whose phrase this is, but it's contaminated time. Oh, like, that's a great phrase. I think it was Bridget Schulte, who I interviewed, who's works at the, she heads up the Better Life Lab at New America Foundation. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about contaminated time. Yeah. She wrote this book called Overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> Same, Bridget. <laughs> um, so what are some lessons that you've learned throughout your career that you wish you would have known when you were starting out your career? Right. Huh. Well, first, that time thing. I mean, protect the your work is paramount, right? I mean, and that's true for all of us, but especially those of us who have careers where we're we're the sole producer of the product. Um, it's your you have to protect the work above everything else, and um, and that is a difficult thing to learn, and it's a difficult thing to convince others it needs to happen, especially when you're an artist. Like I, I think about my parent. I've been like I said, doing this for almost a decade, and my 11th book is this book, Day of the Duchess. And my parents still, I think, feel like it's very sort of the muse, I sit and the muse comes and the words pour. (laughs) And like, that's 100% not how it works. And anybody who's an artist will tell you that, that it is actually work. But I think um, the, the disservice that we do as creators is letting the rest of the world believe that our work is magic and not work. Right, right. <laughs> um, right. And that is, that's a thing that we can all do better. Yeah. At. That, and I think also just the sense that the world is many, you will, you will find your tribe and you have, but you have to seek them out. You have to do the work to find them because many, many people believe that it's a zero sum game and your success is somehow taking away from my possibility for success. And I think the world is very big and technology is amazing and we all have a chance to find success. And you just need to, you need to remove toxicity from your life as much as possible. But I feel like that's a thing that when you're young, you don't know how to do that. How to take control over who has influence on you and, and who you spend your time with. Yeah, well, there's fear of eliminating that voice from your life Mm -hmm. because there's almost safety in toxicity. Like, Oh, if, if I'm told, if I, you know, if I can't do it, if this person is right and I can't do it, then I, I really can't fail. Like anything is success. Oh, interesting. This is a very interesting idea. Safety in toxicity. I think so. It's like the whole idea of why we're afraid to believe that we can achieve something. Exactly. Because it's terrifying to think, that you might get close to success and fail, but if you believe that failure is, you know, ground zero, then success is just icing. Very interesting. So many of the women I've talked to on this show have talked about how they found success when they just, you know, overcame the fear and they just went for it mm-hmm. and, you know, ignored the, ignored the naysayers or the haters, right. as you said, but also just accepted that I might fail and that's okay because I'm going to learn something along the way and that journey will be itself worth it. Sure. But it's hard. I mean, that's a challenging thing to do. I mean, there's never a better, I mean, again, I'm a writer, right? So everything is through the lens of that. 
but there's never a better book. The best of my books are the ones where I've thrown out 200 pages and started again. Oh my gosh. And there's nothing (laughs) worse that, I mean, I don't do that every book because I don't feel that I need to every book, but there's literally nothing worse than saying I have written 200 pages and now it is garbage, right? Wow. And, And there is such fear in that, right? Because I mean, it's probably fun. <laughs> but those are the Would best anyone books. really notice? But those are the best books that you think. Oh, without question. Those are the best of my books. And not because of, I, I don't know why. I mean, I think it's probably more that um, because you have no choice, you feel like you have no choice but to overcome that fear of tossing it out and starting again. And so you end up writing a book that is just better for it. That makes me feel better because I spent my entire week this week writing and rewriting one article. <laughs> the worst. The worst. And rewriting and rewriting yeah. and rewriting. So I'm glad to hear that. That makes for a better work product. <laughs> yeah. Well, my this book, Day of the Duchess, the whole setup, I you know, was 240 pages into it on November 7th. And then I woke up on November 9th after the election, opened the document and wanted the hero to die in a ditch. <laughs> Which, when you're a romance novelist, is not good. It is not good to be more than halfway through your book and want your hero dead. So so I had to throw it out and start over. Wow. Um, And I wrote a, I mean, essentially, what's interesting is I still wrote a book about a marriage in trouble and, you know, strife overcome, but the hero was a completely different character um, in the second iteration, and it's a better book for it. It's also a book where I can, you know, tolerate the heroes, so that helps. <laughs> this is all caused by the election. Yeah, I was like, this guy definitely voted for Donald Trump, and that's out. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Not anymore, though. Now he was totally with her. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he definitely, he was with her. 100%. 100%. Oh, wow. That is, an, that is an effect of the election that I definitely had not contemplated. And I think a lot of creators are feeling right. that way. Like their work, the work is changing, um, you know, and I'm sure it's changing for every creator, no matter what their politics. But um, I think for many of us, the work is changing because we're feeling like, well, how do we, one, what do we do? You know, how do we how do we do it right in this world? Like, how do we focus? How do we ignore yeah. the fact that it feels like everything's on fire? Right. <laughs> but, which we've all had to face, yeah. you know, in our own personal lives. Everybody's life feels like it's on fire now and then. So there's that. And we're sort of all kind of comfortable with that. But then there's this sense of, like, what's our identity in the world now? What's our responsibility as creators? What's our, you know... What's the capital W work that we have to do? And so I think we're all kind of struggling with that. Well, I think there's going to be some amazing creations that come out of that uh, process. That's what they say. <laughs> I have this fa- my dearest friend is an art historian. And right after the election, she said, you know, every great piece of art in the world was written in a time of political strife. Or written was, yeah. you know, created in a time of political strife. You know, think of Guernica. And... Um, <laughs> And what I'm really fascinated by and what I want is the research on, like, but what was created in the first, like, year? Yeah. Was it all just hot garbage? <laughs> or, like, did Picasso, like, throw out a bunch of paintings? And, and, the other thing, <laughs> and the other thing is, you know, the whole history of the world has been political strife. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I interviewed on this show Zephyr Teachout, who mm-hmm. ran for office um, in New York. And she said that she thought the error of her generation, my, I'm part of that generation, 
was that we accepted democracy as like we've done it, we've achieved it, and we've now our job is to kind of spread it to the world instead of recognizing just how fragile it is. Mm-hmm. And she said, if you took a dart and you threw it at any time in history, the odds of you fa- you landing on a time that was, you know, stable and egalitarian are very, very, very slim. Mm-hmm. So to think that you know it's that alone should indicate how fragile. Mm-hmm. It is. So it may be that the whole history of the world is political strife. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, our lifetimes have been this strange, you know. I, I think exactly. I, I think my generation, Generation X, um, lived in this kind of unprecedented time of peace and prosperity. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And now we're all like, <laughs> endless screaming. No, like, yeah. <laughs> Well, Sarah, it has been such a pleasure. I had a great time. Thank you for having me. And um, tell everybody again what your book is called, when it comes out. Sure. Um, The book is The Day of the Duchess, and it is out uh, Tuesday, June 27th. Soon. All right. Yeah. On shelves (laughs) near you. Wonderful. I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Take care. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.